You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Michael Easley. Welcome to In Context. It is a new year and a time to think about New Year's resolutions. Do you like them? Do you love them? Do you hate them? Are you apathetic toward them? Well, I've gone through every one of those emotions when it comes to writing something down for a new year. Goals can be interesting things. I do believe there's power in writing something down, putting it in front of us, keeping it in front of us, thinking about it, praying through it. Am I going to start something new, stop something I no longer want to do? Do I want to create a new discipline? Do I want to exercise more, eat less? Do I want to read more, etc., etc.? Well, the oldest psalm in the Psalter was actually written by Moses. It is Psalm 90, as you may know. And Psalm 90 is an extraordinary text because it's a reflection of all of Moses' life as he looks back and then looks ahead on the cusp of his life, knowing he will not receive the promise of going into the land. Because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion against God, But what he pins at the last part of this psalm is nothing short of incredible. So, let's tune in to a message recently given to the Ramsey Solutions team for their weekly devotional. And we're going to take a look at Moses' prayer. And in the passage, you're going to hear four takeaways as you think about your new year. 1985, 1987 for me was the time of uncertainty. I turned 30 in 87, so you can do the math. I'll be 60 soon. And um, I I don't know that it was midlife crisis, but the best way I can explain it was I'd gone to college, I'd gone through graduate school, which was a four-year program, I was in a doctoral program, and at 30 years of age, I was kind of like, is this all there is? I've been two years at the first little church I served in Grand Prairie, Texas, the delightful church, delightful people, but um, I I just hit this kind of gestalt, is this what my life's going to be? It wasn't horrible, it wasn't bad. But it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Circumstances in life can make us question the reality of our faith. The propositional idea of circumstances in life can affect, can cause us to question the reality of our faith is a little hard to put flesh on at first blush, but that to me is the core principle. When something in our horizontal realm affects the way I look at my life and then begin to wonder about my faith, God, have you brought me this far for what reason? Why? Why is this feeling this way? Now, maybe you've never had a doubtful day in your life. Maybe you've been that man or woman that you knew from age whatever you were going to work for Dave Ramsey. I have friends that knew from day one they were going to be in medicine. And I marvel at people like that. I truly do. But I've always been that one that kind of wonders what else could I have done? 1985, between this 85, 87 period, I thought about cashing in after all this graduate school and trying to go to med school. And I'm married to this wonderful woman who I went home after four years of college, four years of grad school. In God's kindness, we had no debt. We didn't, we weren't smart enough to be in or out of debt. We were too scared, too stupid. We just avoided it. And so we're trying to figure out what we're going to be when we grow up. I was making $22,000 a year with no health insurance, with no benefits, no nothing. And Cindy was a stay-at-home mom with our first little baby girl. And uh, I thought, I think I'm going to go to med school. And I came home and said, honey, I want to try to get into med school. I want to take a year off from 
from uh, church and go back to pick up all my sciences that I need to make 4.0 on and see if I can do the MCAT. And typical Cindy Easley, she paused for a minute. She goes, well, we'll probably have to sell the house for you to do that. We'll probably have to live in an apartment. And that's just how Cindy goes. And so it was all in in the trajectory. And I went through about a two-year period digging in deep, can I do this? And then I learned the sober truth that if I started at that age, I'd be 42 before I'd be able to practice the field of medicine that I wanted to do. So the experiences of life can make us question the reality of our faith. What are we going to be? What are we going to do? It's not just how you face transitions. It's how you face life. And I look at life in decades at my age now, what you're thinking in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s, and they go by quickly. Don't you hate when old people say, it goes by quickly? (laughs) It goes by quickly. And uh, before you know it, you're an old guy like me, and you start looking at life a little maudlin, or you get the right perspective. If you have a Bible, I want you to look at Psalm 90. We're going to camp mostly on the last few verses that will be on the screen, but just to give you a high view of this psalm before we look at it, the psalm is about God's eternality and man's brevity. God's eternal, man's brief. God is immutable, he's strong, he's sovereign, man is frail and short-lived. And the psalm is the oldest in your Psalter. It was written by Moses, most people don't know that, if you have a Bible with notations in it, it will refer it back to Deuteronomy 33.1, which tells us Moses was 120 years old. Now, we don't know the time stamp on when Psalm 90 was written. We don't know precisely the events. I would lean towards Numbers chapter 20, and that was the story where Miriam and, and uh, Aaron die. Miriam is the oldest sister. We think she may have been the one that rescued Moses out of the river. Uh, Aaron, of course, is older. He's the spokesman with uh, Moses. So whenever you read the Exodus story, keep Aaron in your mind because he's right there with Moses according to the, the storyline. And so the sibling, the sibling group is tight all the way through all the failures, all the events. Moses' life is in 40s. Remember 40 years as a prince, 40 years and wandering and so forth and so on. So this is the last 40. He's probably 120, give or take, and Miriam dies. And so this is the psalm that he writes. The first couple of verses are about what eternity's like. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The mountain reference for the ancient Near Eastern mind was something they would look at and go, it's, it's never changed. It's always been there. It's old. So they would look at this structure Maybe when you go out, if you're a fly fisherman or you ride bikes, you're into horses or you're into nature and hiking and you get out, something about being out and you look at how small you are and how big creation is. The ancient Near Eastern mind was similar. This is so much older and bigger than me. So it's a painting of God's eternality, his existence. And then he makes this interesting longing where he talks about home, essentially. Uh, For a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday as it passes by, or a watch in the night. You swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we are consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquity before you, our secret sin in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, We have finished our years like a sigh. 
For the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80. Yet their pride is labor and sorrow, and soon it is gone, and we fly away. And you know, old Baptist hymn, I'll fly away, good Lordy, that's where the phrase comes from, I'll fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Who understands your fury according to the fear that is due you? So the psalmist begins to talk about this sojourning experience. Keep in mind, when the Israelite longed for home, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. This was a time, this was a time stamp for them. Everybody who's 20 and older dies. If you do the math, 1.5 million people went into the wilderness in their 40 years. Everybody over 20 is going to die. Some of the best people in conservative studies of numbers talk about hundreds of burials a day for 40 years. Think about that. One long funeral procession. The wilderness of Judea, and, and if they were down as far as Egypt part of this time, uh, is not a pleasant place. And so they want a home. Some of you have moved here recently. Some of you are in the process of buying and selling a home or adding on. seems like that's what we all do. We all add on, build on. We're sitting there trying to decide if we're going to move, build. We're having fun discussions. She wants to live downtown in a little tiny shoebox in the city. I want to be past 840 on acreage. We haven't found the combination therein yet. The best might be I get a trailer house somewhere out in 840, and she gets her condo, and then I'll be dead, so that's how it's going to work. What is it about a home? Why do we put so much emotional energy in a home? She's a realtor, and um, she'll come home sometimes talking about clients. And, and I always remind her, not that I know anything about real estate, I just remind her, I go, honey, this is the largest expense and most emotional decision most people make. Not all, but most. It's their biggest piece of financial, you know this, this is your wheelhouse. And it's emotional. And you know the realtor axiom, right? Buyers are liars and sellers are too. They say they want this and they want that, and they really, you know, after 25 houses, they get something completely different. Why do we put so much stock in a house? Israel didn't have a home. They were Bedouins. They lived in tents. Their home was a cloud by day and a cloud by night. And when the cloud moved, Israel would pack up and move. Can you imagine moving a million people in the wilderness? Imagine moving this staff. Let's just round it up to 600. Imagine moving you in the wilderness with tents and all that you need to move from place A to place B, always looking for water. Well, he uses a number of illustrations of the ludicrous comparison of God against man. God's eternal, man's brief. And we know this, you know, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. The psalmist is saying, if a man lived a hundred years, ten times that, a thousand, is nothing to God. So he's trying to give us the picture. Here's the old man Moses about to die, looking back on his entire life, and he's saying, this goes quickly. It goes very quickly, and I want my life to have something substantial. I want it to mean something, the brief nature of our life. Now, what the psalm gets into in some detail is that the reason our life is short is because of sin. And let's go back to the construct. Adam fell because of his sin. He was to live forever in communion with God without sin or temptation. But the woman and the man caved, as would have we, and they broke that relationship, and now they're out of the garden. And the fall had consequences on how long we lived, 
on the environment, on weather, on erosion, all the things we see, the earth groans, longing for redemption. This is an evidence of the fall. When Adam fell, he fell far. So Moses is lamenting this, that sin is what's caused this trouble. Sin has left to death. And he talks about sin being exposed, our secret sins. Or uh, L, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, said a secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. We think we can hide it. We think we can live under the technology you know, veil of using the right browsers and the right tools. We think we can live a lie and get away with it. And that's the danger of all this is sin is separation. It always leads to exposure. It always leads to death. Well, he appeals to God for his compassion. And this is where the, the psalm takes the upswing. Verse 13. Let's read it together. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So the appeal to God's compassion. Let's talk a little bit about this word loving kindness. If you go to fellowship, you've heard this a thousand times. Loving kindness is a little Hebrew word chesed, roughly in English H-S-D, chesed. If you read the New American Standard, it's always loving kindness. If you read the ESV, it's always steadfast love. The translators do a good job protecting the integrity of this word. If you read the NIV, good luck, sorry. Um, loving kindness is the single most important word in the Old Testament. Because it speaks of God's loyalty to two things, his chosen people and his covenant promises. He chose a certain people group called Israel, Abraham, down through them, and he made covenant promises to them. So when the writers talk about God's loving kindness endures forever, it's not talking about this romantic view of emotional love that we have. It's chesed love. He loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises. If he chose you, he loves to be loyal to that. If he made a promise to you, his character, he loves to be loyal to that promise. There's no way we can illustrate this on a horizontal level. The best we can come up with is a husband and wife that's really solid and strong. And I'll use Cindy and me as an example, not the example. We've been married 36 years. We do not love each other with the love with which we married. And any of you who have been married more than six months understand this. The love with which you marry is a fantasy. It's lust. It's, it's not love at all. It's an idealistic over-expectation that's ludicrous. Right? Right? It's, it, it just, if you're not there yet, drink the Kool-Aid and, and come along with us. <laughs> loving your wife, loving your, your husband is ethical more than emotional. I've got a commitment to Cindy that I made before God and man, and I will not budge on that. Do I, do I want to divorce her? No. Do I want to kill her sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> Same for her with me. But we love each other with a love after 36 years that is impenetrable because we've worked like dogs at it. And I am emotionally, yes, ethically, yes, connected to this person, 
after forging a relationship. Are we perfect? No. Do we fight? Yes. Is she wrong a lot? Yes. <laughs> we, we, we're just like anybody else. But there's a piece of steel with, between us that no one can bust or bend because we work so stinking hard at it and we stay so close together in all our ventures. Now, that's not anything like God's loving kindness. It's a poor illustration at best. But I have an ethical relationship with her and she with me. I trust her and she trusts me. She's there for me when I need her. I'm there for her when she needs me. And that's not even a good illustration. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and his covenant promises, and they're immutable and inflexible. He will not change them. So the psalmist talks about this word loving kindness. In fact, if you're a Bible student, you love to read your scripture, if you have an ESV or an NASB, every time you see that word, circle it, and it will come alive to you in your Bible when you understand how the psalmist, how the worshiper, how David, how uh, Old Testament stories, Abraham, appealed to God's chesed because there's no place else to go. That's the only hope the Old Testament believer had. Well, these, these chapters of these songs remind them of their history. They lived in this wilderness wandering. He's about to die. He's never going to have the home he wanted. Think of your entire life waiting to be in a piece of land that you were promised, and then you don't get to go there. And you die at 120 on the border watching the sunset. And you lived your entire life. After his experience in Egypt, the first 40 years, the rest of his life was terrible. Now, maybe he had the best tent of all. But if you've camped out more than about a week, I don't care how nice the tent is. Right? You want a residence. You want a place to call home. And his was always moving throughout the wilderness years. He prays for the Lord's work to appear to his servants. And it parallels verse 15 because they'd seen evil. Let us see the work that we accomplished. And then, of course, this choice phrase that most of you know, the last two verses repeated. Um, Let me see the work of my hands. Did, Did what I do make a difference? And I think you can ask that question whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60. Is what you're doing making a difference? Life's experience can question the reality of your faith. Is this what I'm supposed to be when I grow up? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to work for Ramsey Solutions for the next 20 years? Is this the next chapter? Am I supposed to be a pastor of a local church for the next 10 years? Is it my time to step aside? Life's circumstances can affect and impact our view of faith. So I want you to transcend that a little bit and ask a bigger question. What the psalmist asked, does my life have meaning? Does the work that I've done mean something? Does it make a difference? Because that's what your heart longs for. That's what my heart longs for. I want to make a difference. My greatest fear when I started being in ministry was being a fat, old, boring pastor. And I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but that was stereotypical in my day. Guys that had worked themselves into a position, and they got paid a nice salary, and they just were sort of boring and stuck in their ways, and irrelevant, but they had, the church existed for them. And I begged God, God I don't, take me out. If I bore you with the word of God, it may not be a sin in God's eyes, but it's a sin in my economy. Because this is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Let me give you four things to think about as you pray through 
this psalm on your own, and I hope you'll read it some this week, maybe in your devotions. Because we're finite, we need infinite help. Because he's eternal and we're brief, we need eternal help. Let me give you four things to pray for. Number one, pray for a broken heart towards your sin. Pray for a broken heart towards your sin. I think part of the challenge that, that I'm observing in our culture is that people aren't brokenhearted about their sin. They're really, it's not that big a deal. I know I can get forgiveness. And they might even know 1 John 1, 9, get, a, get out of jail free card. If I sin, I confess it and God will give me a break. Uh, your sin and mine are, are horrible. It's not a light infraction. Um, I don't know if you ever talk about politics here or not, um, but you know, in, uh, Cindy and I are junkies, and uh, we, we are so nauseated with this season. We cannot wait for this thing to be over. It's just insufferable how easy everybody seems to be lying about every stinking thing. We've become a nation of liars. And you wonder why your kids, if you have kids, have trouble telling. If you're raising children, what just drives you through it? Tell me the truth. So now I talked to parents this, this week that had a teenage boy who his first go-to is to lie. And they were like asking us for the answers. I ain't got any answers. I'll tell you what we do with our kids when they lied. Didn't work. They're free agents. At some point, God's got to crash into their heart and soul. And they've got to want God more than they want the horizontal view of life, life circumstances will make you question the reality of your faith, where your faith should be the bedrock for your life circumstances. So I think it begins with the psalmist saying, uh, pray that God will help you see your sin and it will break your heart. Secondly, a lesson from the psalmist, pray for God's perspective on your life. In verse 12, to number our days. You all know uh, James 4.14, our life is a vapor. It appears for a moment, steam of a kettle, fog on a mirror. Um, I, used to, I, used, I used to shave with a real blade. I don't need more, but I used to shave with a real blade. And every morning when I'd make that hot water and lather up and shave, I would think about, that's how long I'm going to last. I'm kind of a modeling guy. Just, just fog on a mirror, fog on a mirror. Turn the AC down, turn the fan on, it goes away, my life's over. That's what James tells us. In comparison to eternity, the psalmist is telling us the same thing. Our life's brief. I've learned about four people who I knew who passed away in the past week. I go, wow, it just, this is the time of life. You're, all your friends are dying as you get older. This is another Michael Easley encouraging message. <laughs> You're going to die. Um, and I know, I know a bit of your business, and I, I applaud and commend what you do, but hear me carefully. Building barns does not make us live longer. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with planning and leaving legacies and helping people do what you do. Not, hear me clearly, nothing wrong with that. But keep it in perspective. We're gone. And yeah, people will follow behind us, and we want to help those people who follow behind us. I mean, for goodness sakes, that's my goal with this book is to help people who follow behind me. We're a generation that turns pages, and they're gone. My mentors are dead. I have one mentor who's left now, and he's getting addled. I was talking to a mutual friend the other day about him. He's a former physician. And I said, when Alan dies, I don't know what I'm going to do. And Robert, who's a little older than me, said, Michael, we're Alan. I said, yeah, but I don't like that. 
I don't want to be Alan. I want Alan to be there for me. And those decades go quickly. I need God's perspective on my life. I need to see that the fingerprints that people put on my soul is somehow I'm putting on other people's souls. Not in an egotistical pride way, but God, am I being used? Listen, we can accomplish all kinds of things. I have three degrees. I'm three degrees above zero. Big whoop. Big whoop. I have friends that have four and five PhDs. Big whoop. All that, all that, let me tell you, getting a doctorate, all it requires is enduring boredom. That's all it requires in writing some checks, enduring boredom. You can do anything academically if you want. I'm per- proof of that, I promise you. I need God's perspective on my life. God, what do you think of my life? Instead of the what would Jesus do thing we did a while back, I wish it would have been what does Jesus think about my life, my choices, my decisions, my goals, my objectives. Third, pray for God's grace to make you glad. Pray for God's grace to make you glad. Look again if you have it in your device or a real Bible. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. I love that he ends this way. Don't don't let me be that half empty, uh, and I can go there. I can be the Eeyore pretty quickly. Don't let me go there and be that person. Notice he didn't say, I want to be glad. He goes, make me glad. It's a very interesting verb form. Now, gladness is different than joy and happy. Happiness is fleeting. We all know that. Um, You know, maybe you get your favorite. How many of you like Starbucks pumpkin lattes? Come on, be brave. Put your hand up high, even though you support that organization. My wife loves pumpkin latte. I mean, she can't wait for pumpkin latte. I can't stand them myself, but she loves pumpkin latte. I heard someone on the news the other day talking, pumpkin lattes are coming out. They love pumpkin lattes. You know, a pumpkin latte, after you drink it, you go, I don't feel real well. <laughs> it's too much sugar, whatever that stuff was in there, and I want another one tomorrow. How, how long are you happy? How long are you really happy? It's gone the next hour, right? Um, ha- let's, let's set happiness aside. Joy is a good thing. Joy is choosing an attitude no matter how much pain you're in. That's what the Bible verse means. Joy is a choice no matter how much pain I'm in. Gladness is different. Gladness of heart, the scripture speaks of, that I'm light in heart, that I can smile at the future. I tell our congregation all the time, I say, I want you to be in the word. I want you to have hope in the future. I don't want you to live in fear and discouragement. I want you to be able to smile at the future. Because he's won it for you. Yeah, the world stinks. Politics is horrific to watch. We've got wars. We've got all kinds of troubles. We've got Zika. I wasn't thinking a thing about Zika until I met a guy at lunch last week who just moved from Miami. They moved from Miami. They have a little baby girl. His wife was pregnant when they were in Florida. And I thought, you know, if I'd have been in his shoes, I'd have been paying more attention to Zika. And now all I see in the news is Zika, 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 right? So being in a position of gladness is regardless of our circumstances, regardless of life circumstances, which can affect our faith, can our faith be the bedrock that do not let life circumstances affect us? Pray for God's grace to make you glad. We live by a river of grace, and we sit on the sideline and complain. 
I, I don't know the answer. I talk to a lot of people that are discouraged by life, by marriage, by their children who break their hearts, by health issues, and that's part of being in the, in the world I'm in. And I get that. I want to be a compassionate guy. I'm probably not the guy to give you much compassion, but I want to be that guy. But I often want to say to them, were you ever happy as a kid? Were you ever glad as a person? Go back and dig up that memory. What was it like when you were a glad person and you were a light at heart toward God? And what was the circumstance around you that made you feel that way? Now, let's go forward. Will life circumstances have to coalesce again before you're going to be glad? And here the psalmist says, make us glad. Now, I'm pounding a point, but all it means to me is biblical gladness requires God's work in my life. It's not something I muster up. I can't just choose to be an exciting, happy person today. I need God's work in my life. Pray for God's grace to make you glad. That's a pretty good prayer for some of us. God, make me glad. Make me glad for my husband, for my wife. I got a job. I'm sitting in an air-conditioned room. I got a nice office. I got a car to drive, a home to sleep in. I got kids. Yeah, that's maybe glad. Emptiness is the best, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Four and last, pray that God's work, uh, God will establish the work of your hands. Pray that God would establish the work of your hand. Now, think about Moses for just a minute. Here's a guy who saw God face to face. Here's a guy today who even nominal Jews revere as the most important person on the planet besides God. Moses was the guy who talked to God face to face. He was the guy who saw the 10 plagues of Egypt go through and destroy the Egyptian army on the cusp of the Red Sea. He was the guy that performed miracles and signs and wonders. He was the guy that led those people out of slavery. He's the hero's hero. The law of Moses is more important to them than anything. I don't know what historical figure we could even compare it to in our pathetic view of world history. But the Jew would say Moses was the greatest servant that ever walked the planet. And on the cusp of his death, he's asking God to give my life meaning. It helps me that I'm not alone in thinking, does my life matter? Does it count? Bigger, better, newer, more, no matter how hard we strive in good things, in ministry, in generosity, in whatever you, in raising your children, in raising your grandchildren, bigger, better, newer, more will always hit a plane for all of us. We go, do, do I keep going on this? Right? That, what, that, what, you teach it, right? One of the greatest lessons we learned through Crown and FPU and all the things we did was you got to draw a standard of living. That's it. And once we get there, we can do some fun things, but we have to come to a standard of living because I can't accomplish everything as someone else can. And that comparison thing, just shoot it, just kill it. Comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. Once you compare yourself to somebody else, you're going to be dis disgruntled and unhappy. And we can always find those on either side, right? So for you and me, it's, okay, this is my life's work, not what you do. Not what some person we esteem does. It's my life's work. I want my life to count. Does your life matter? We all remember the end of Saving Private Ryan. What a poignant depiction when he asked his wife, was I a good man? What's he asking? Did my life count? Did it matter? The end of Schindler's List. We've overused that clip, but the end of Schindler's List. This pen, 10 more people, 10 more people. He didn't do enough. 
I think it's sewn into the fabric, eternity in our heart. We want our life to count. So pray. Ask God to establish the work of your hands. Father, thanks for these men and women for what they do. Encourage them when they grow weary. Remind them that their faith is the bedrock, not their circumstances. We'll all face the wax and wane of circumstances that make us question and challenge. It's normal. Give us the courage to stand by our faith. Give us the courage to trust you no matter what those circumstances may be. And give our life meaning in Christ's name. Amen. In Context is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or monthly donation at michaelincontext.com? Thank you.